Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones every friend to look inside their hearts and understand that I Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. Uh, We have a really exciting show for you today, and so I'm glad that you can be here with us. I'm your host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, Lori LeBay. And for those of you that are new to our show, Alzheimer's Speaks is an advocacy-based company, and we provide multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. We believe that by joining forces and sharing knowledge and just having these everyday conversations about life with dementia, that we can remove the stigmas attached to memory loss and help Help those living with this disease live with purpose. Together, we can, by sharing just our common everyday knowledge that we take for granted, can help others understand the true needs of this disease. And by doing that, we're going to be able to just remove the fear and the isolation that is just so overwhelming and is part of this package called dementia. At our core, um, I know that we can that we can win this battle, and we're making great strides because um, Share Care and Dr. Oz named Alzheimer Speaks the number one influencer online for Alzheimer's, which was pretty overwhelming um, and quite the honor. And that was done because of all of you sharing and liking the show. Um, sharing and liking our website, www.alzheimerspeaks.com, going to our Facebook pages, um, our LinkedIn, and sharing all the different modes that we have. You see, we've got the radio show, but then we've got a blog, we've got a YouTube channel, um, we do the dementia chats, um, which are webinars where we interview people with the disease and get their expertise. And by helping us share all of that information with your friends, your family, um, and your circles out there, you're allowing people to be able to grab that information <clears throat> when the time is right. Because most of us would be pretty surprised at how many people that we know are dealing with this disease, but it's not discussed. So again, I really appreciate your shares, your likes, your tweets. Um, Keep that up and keep the information being pushed out. The other thing that we have um, with Alzheimer's Speaks, if you go to the website, is we do have a resource directory. 
and anyone who is providing tools, products, or services um, can go ahead and input their information. Just go up to the very top of the website, and there is a button called Partnering Options Share That You Care. There, all you have to do is register. Um, there'll be two buttons that pop up, but scroll right down before that, and then Right, or right after that, there's a registration form. Um, fill that out, and once you do, you can have access to our free tools, and you can also go to um, input your information into the resource, resource directory. Now, today... Um, we would love for you to join the conversation, and there's a couple of different ways that you can do that. If you have a question and you want to ask it live, you can call in to 714-364-4757. Again, that number is 714-364-4757. If you're on our um, homepage for the radio, it's right, that number is right above the, the pictures that kind of flash by. The other route you can communicate with us is through the chat box. You just need to, when you sign in, sign in through Facebook, and then I can see your comments. And as there's a break in the conversation, I will definitely um, pull in your questions and your comments and um, make you part of the conversation in that format. Now, before I introduce our first guest here, I always just like to announce some special organizations that I think a lot of people don't know exist, or not to the extent that they should. And the first one that I like to mention is the Alzheimer's Disease International Organization. They are the association of all the Alzheimer's associations around the world. And you can find them by just Googling Alzheimer's Disease International, or you can go to www.alz.co.uk. And there you'll be able to find the closest Alzheimer's Association to you. You'll also have access to the World Reports. They have a um, international uh, conference coming up, I believe, in May in Puerto Rico. And so if you're interested in going to that, I think there's three days left for special pricing on that. Um, a couple other um, organizations I would like to mention is the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation. And the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation really comes at this disease um, holistically. And they just do an absolutely fabulous job. They've been around for 20 years, and most people don't know about them. So check out the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation. Again, you can Google or just go to alzheimersprevention.org. Now, the Lewy Body Association, the Association for Frontal Temporal Degeneration, the National Aphasia Association are all very specific organizations um, with certain types of dementia. And these are a little bit lesser known, but it's very important for people to um, know that they exist so that they can get the help that they that they need. Um, 
there is also a, a um, study out there, a clinical trial, and if you Google Alzheimer's studies or you can go to the Alzheimer's team on Facebook, they're doing a clinical trial on tau. They're in their third trial and they're still looking for people, so that would be an excellent place to go. And then from a social aspect, um, there's a couple of things that I like to mention. Um, music first with Coral Health. If you know me, you know I'm huge into music and the arts when it comes to dementia and engaging. They are absolutely fabulous. And you can um, just, again, Google um, Coral Health. And they do what, what they call music prescriptions. And so they can um, help people wake up, go to sleep, eat, uh, change moods through music. Um, this is also a downloadable app, which is called Music First with Coral Health. And then Puzzle With Me just has created a great puzzle, bigger pieces, um, age-appropriate um, you know, not as many pieces, um, and it, it's just a, a really nice, nice uh, a tool to be able to engage people because there's a lot of people that like doing puzzles, but, you know, the big 100 and 200 pieces is just way too much. Um, and then Jiminy Wicket is a croquet game that can be done intergenerational, and this can be done as a family or it can be done with organizations like schools and um, memory care units teaming up. Up, which is uh, which is pretty pretty fabulous, and the Purple Angel Project for those of you that don't know um, is a project to raise awareness. And um, you know, feel free to reach out to me. You can email me at Lori L O R I at alzheimerspeaks.com, and I would be glad to get you uh, more information on that. But it's called the Purple Angel Project, and it's a symbol that you can use um, as an individual or a company to help raise awareness. And I'm in the process of working on getting something on the website. I've been slower than than I, I wanted to on that, but but it is coming out there. So let me go ahead and introduce our first guest here. Dr. Ina Gilmore began her practice in 1984 in adult care medicine. And after several years, she went back to school to train as an infectious disease specialist and then later became an assistant professor of medicine at the Albany Medical College. Several years later, she cared for her ailing mother, Clara, and soon experienced the full impact and stress of combining a demanding career with, pri with being a primary caregiver. Initially, Ina's mother's medical problems were primarily related to her heart, and as time progressed, she developed cerebral um, vascular dementia, which has uh, many similarities to Alzheimer's disease as a whole. The isolation of caring for an elderly parent while working odd hours became really overwhelming for her. It affected her entire life profoundly, both professionally and personally, as she struggled to find herself without losing herself, which also included her personal health that can be robbed, as we all know, with the burdens of caregiving. 
Dr. Ina realized most of her life she had spent as a caregiver, both informally for family and friends and professionally as a physician. In the depths of the darkness of caring for her mother on her final journey with um, with the seemingly unconcerned health with a seemingly unconcerned healthcare system, she has found her voice. She says um, that she realized without her medical expertise, they could not have survived the process. In the dawn of this realization and recovery. From this experience, she has found her life's mission, helping others not just survive, but thrive in caregiving. So if you're a long-distance caregiver or if you're living in the same space, it doesn't make any difference. You're going to be able to find a lot of great information from Dr. Ina Gilmore with Caregiving with Living Purpose. And that's www.caregivingwithpurpose.com. Welcome, Dr. Gilmore. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. I'm I'm so excited um, to have this conversation with you because it's always, I think, very interesting when someone has lived and breathed um, this whole journey, and now you've seen it from just about every angle possible, which is rare, um, and I think it gives so many fantastic insights when that occurs. And so, um, first, I have to again thank you for for being part of the show today. And um, second, I wanted to um, I'm, I'm going to break into a couple of different things because I definitely want to get into the telesum summit. But there's some key phrases that you use um, that I want our audience to understand. So, um, the first is, you know, what do you mean by the caregiver's heart? Because you use that phrase a lot. Can you explain that to us? I sure can. Um, thank you for having me, by the way. Um, this is a this started as an explanation of for why some people become caregivers and others don't. And in it's not a judgment, but it's I just realized that the caregiver's heart is different. You're looking at the situation differently and feeling it. It, it really takes a very special person that has the compassion to be able to open their own heart to care for someone else, to open, to share the pain of, of giving care, especially to someone who isn't getting better. And you're going through not only grieving for what has been lost, but grieving for what is to come, and the change, and just um, not everybody can do it. And that's what I refer to it as the caregiver's heart because some people will look at the same situation and to protect themselves, probably to protect their heart, they have to walk away or give it to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And it's very, the caregiver. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say that's a very true comment um, because there are so many people that just do walk away, mm-hmm. you know, because they, they just can't they can't deal with it. And um, so I think that that's a really um, important factor um, that you mentioned there. Um, What is the one message that you want to make sure that all caregivers hear? You're not alone. Simple words, but um, something that 
that isn't always felt. I know I I sure yeah. didn't feel like I like there were others walking on the path. I mean, you do you you feel so isolated. So, with those simple words, how do we make it a reality for someone who's who's new on this path? Well, I think the first thing to realize is that most people don't realize there are. 54 million family caregivers in the United States. That's the latest estimate I saw. So you're not alone even if you feel alone. There are a lot of people out there. And I think what we need to do is, like what you are doing, is get the information out there to people, whether it's through um, social media, through um, websites, um, to really let people know, to reach out to people and try and get the information there. Part of the problem particularly with the Internet, is that I've found is that people are not searching for for the, the words that that most people would think of. Most caregivers don't think of themselves as a caregiver. They think mm-hmm. of themselves first as a daughter or a mother or, you know, sister, brother, something like that. So even the terminology a lot of times is difficult for people to find. They do look for things like, Alzheimer's disease and other diseases, but that can be so varied. You might be dealing with somebody that has Alzheimer's disease and then another caregiver is caring for somebody with heart disease, someone else has kidney disease. So a lot of the information is not, it's sporadic and it's not always um, where you would expect it to be or, or and the people that are putting the information out there, a lot of times we don't know how to get the information to the people that need it, the caregivers, because there's a communication barrier there. Very true. And I I think the other thing that people don't realize is all of the various groups that are out there, especially Mm -hmm. if you go on on Facebook. You know, there's a lot of different groups out there that are connecting people, not just caregivers um, nationally, but internationally. So if you're in crisis and it's 3 a.m., chances are there's going to be somebody out there able to talk to you and wanting to talk to you, um, you know, just to, to to be able to bend that ear. And I know for me anyways, as a caregiver, and you can let me know what, what your thoughts are, is, you know, I wasn't always looking for answers. I just wanted to be heard. I just needed to vent yep. um, and get it off my chest. And then, again, know that I wasn't alone, that I wasn't the only one struggling, and then maybe getting advice from people who are already in the trenches um, and who were, who were feeling this as well and experiencing this. Because not always do friends understand um, or family, for that matters. Um, you know, if if they're really not involved, or 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 maybe they're standing right there with you, but they're in denial, and and you're not. Um, you can just feel, I think, very alone in that in that instance as well. Would you uh, do you agree with that? Or oh, absolutely, and and it is even compounded by the people that you might turn to the um, the doctors and the nurses and so on. Uh, because they often don't know what's going on. There's a really a professional distancing that doctors and nurses have many times, particularly the doctors, have to do in order to care for people, to care for patients. And they're not, they're not doctors in particular are not usually doing the the kind of caregiving with like nursing care or care, caring for somebody in that way that a family caregiver may deal with. 
they're also de- juggling with other issues, and they're not often looking at the um, the stress and the strain that can occur to the caregiver when someone's giving it 24/7. Uh huh. And and um, so there is a very much a feeling of aloneness, and you they just don't understand what the caregiver is going through. There's a difference between being a professional caregiver and being a um, family caregiver. This actually, my sister is is brilliant at coming up with some of these um, observations. And she said to me one time, well, you're in your clinical voice. In other words, I was talking as if I was (laughs) a physician and not her sister. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And she's very good at telling me to fix that. (laughs) But that's actually, (laughs) but that's very common. It's great that she noticed that and then was brave enough to tell you because I think a lot of people see that in us, but they won't yeah. speak it, and we can't change it if we don't know because we're Absolutely. you know we're just in that mode. So um, you know, I give her kudos for for telling you and speaking up because I do think that that's very very important, and a lot of times people don't understand the power. Um, in that, in a statement like that, and what a shift we can then make um, to correct that and to help the situation. Yep, absolutely. And I was absolutely blind to what was going on until she mentioned it, and then I realized it. Yep, and that's, um, and I think most of us are. I mean, you know, you just you're you're in your own skin, you're you're in your mode, you got your routines going, and you know, then you go into this whole caregiving role and now you're kind of going at that stealth speed trying to keep up with everything and I don't think we have as much time to reflect on how are things being done because you're just so busy getting things done and and checking on stuff which makes a big 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 difference as far as as how we care for one another um now, we touched a little bit about, you know, kind of the, the feeling of isolation, but why do you think that it, that it's so strong? And I, and I think it's so pertinent when it comes to Alzheimer's disease and other types of dementia. I mean, that is one thing that I, is rarely not said about how alone people feel with this disease compared to others. Well, it's... Um First of all, the caregiving is isolating, as you've already mentioned, because the focus is so much on giving care that mm-hmm. other things fall, you know, you get so busy that you don't have time for your usual social activities or calling a friend on the phone. If you think of calling a friend on the phone, it may be 3 a.m. and they may be asleep. Um, there's, with the um, with Alzheimer's, historically looking at it, um, the same thing happened before the 1970s with cancer. It wasn't mentioned. Mm-hmm. And then in the 1980s and 90s, it came out more with HIV and AIDS. You know, you didn't you didn't talk about it. And I think that's been true for Alzheimer's and dementia for a long time, even beyond, um, you know, just recently. But people didn't mention it. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a lot of social stigma associated with some of these diseases that you don't talk about it, you're uncomfortable about it, um, you don't... Sometimes you don't even you're protecting the person that has the disease, and you don't want you know a casual acquaintance to necessarily know what's going on. 
it can be sort of a way of, of protecting that person. Um, there's also um, the isolation that goes along with, with the disease. As someone gets less mobile, they're not as as um, outgoing, and they're not able to have the social interactions. And certainly with dementias, um, that, that again becomes true as, as judgment slips, but also social interactions are more difficult and challenging for somebody that has um, moderate or late, later dementia. And that isolates the person with the disease, and it also then isolates the family caregiver. Very true. Uh, you know, for me, I found one of the most isolating things was, you know, when I look back at it, it was kind of a dishonesty um, thing that I had going, and I, 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 my intent wasn't that, but it was really this big cover-up um, mm-hmm. to, it, and it was, you know, to help my mom feel dignified and belonging. And there's a fine line between. Um, being honest with the situation so that others are aware and can be educated and can help, and um, hiding it. And and I I really struggled with that. And I, there were times where I would find I would get really mad at people going, why don't they get this? And then I would sit back and laugh going, well, because you haven't told them. You haven't shared what it's really like, and it looks really good because you're working your butt off in the back end, making sure everything goes <laughs> smooth and that they're dressed well and they've got their money and they're in their comfort zone and nobody knows. You know, Do you have any suggestions for that? Because I, I think that that's something that you know so many of us struggle with in terms of you know, the dignity and the honesty and the, the education. Kind of when do you come out of the closet with this? Um, you know, uh, because there's such great fear of non-acceptance. Yeah. Well, it's actually, it's got to be based on an individual basis. It's going to be different for different people. There are people that are very outgoing and bubbly and effervescent and would be happy to... Um, I mean they wouldn't they probably wouldn't mind if if family and friends knew the situation. And there are other people that are very and I'm talking about the patients here or the person mm-hmm. with the disease. Um there's somebody else that that is very secretive and wants to keep their their life very secretive or actually may feel as though they have to be perfect all the time. Uh-huh. Um, that person you're going to have a whole a, a more difficulty sharing that information with unless you can do it quietly. Um and you know it gets into our, am I doing this behind somebody's back or not? But there are sometimes you do need to share the information with, particularly with family, because the caregiving responsibilities can become overwhelming for one person very quickly, and it can it can um, lead to hospitalization or even, unfortunately, death of the caregiver if they're not given some respite and some relief and you have to look at it from the standpoint of okay yes I want to protect this person on the other hand I have to take care of myself before I can take care of somebody else that's Mm -hmm. what I was missing for a very long time I was focused so much on caring for um, someone else 
that I didn't pay attention to um, what was needed for me. I was losing sleep. Um, my mother, when my mother's, um, my mother lived with me until until she passed, and I was losing sleep, and and she was sleeping a couple of hours at a time, but I was not getting um, as long a sleep as I needed, and I wasn't getting any breaks. Um, I remember very, my sister was able to give me a break for half a day, uh, a few weeks before my mother really got sick, and that was that was really a, a big blessing for me to just be able to drive to a nearby town and do shopping for half a day. Mm-hmm. Didn't buy a whole lot, but <laughs> just looked around. Um, but I hadn't taken a vacation for a long time, and um, I think that's that's true of a lot of people. It just gets overwhelming to you, but you have to have support. You have to have help. If you can get support before it becomes to that stage, that's really important. You can't always re- you can't always depend on um, hospice or someone else. Yes, you may have a wonderful hospice, and they may be great and perfect. On the other hand, you may not, and that's something that that we ran into were some challenges that um, uh, it wasn't what we expected, and that's just a, a fact of life. And, and certainly, with reimbursement and other things changing almost daily, it seems. I think that's going to be an ongoing issue that um, we don't know necessarily what somebody's insurance is going to cover. And you may need to find help with other family members. And it almost, it's sometimes I've heard um, of descriptions of people that it's almost been like a, an intervention with the caregiver to let them know that they have to give up a little bit of control and help and help, and, and accept help. Uh-huh. And it also depends upon the family situation. You know, some people just can't deal with the caregiving at all, and they don't want to help with it. And it's not, again, it's I, I don't look at it as um, as a defect or as 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 negative, but it's just that some people aren't wired to be caregivers. And you know, maybe they can help another way, pay bills. Um, they could certainly mow the lawn, see that the lawn is mowed or that other errands are run, somebody's grocery shopping is done. There are lots of ways to 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 help out and to to lower this isolation and um, to really keep the uh, caregiver involved in, um, you know, even if you're calling them once once a day or once a week or uh, keeping them up to date with things. One of the blessings we had was when um, one of my sisters sent um, a videotape of her young sons. And my mother watched that multiple times. It was like it wasn't that long a tape, um, but she really enjoyed seeing the, the boys um, and that was a connection, and certainly something like that, you know, sending um, sending a DVD or or sending some sort of video, or even doing it now on the internet. It wasn't available when when that was sent. the uh, The internet wasn't an option for um, sending videos, but um, or talking to somebody on the phone. All of that stuff is is important. Keeping them and keeping the um, caregivers involved and if you find if you find a connection that they maybe you can be doing uh, in an internet search for a caregiver and you if you, for another family member or someone and you find resources and and referring them to them because it can just be overwhelming as you've mentioned even going into a website that's that's very well organized like yours is can be just overwhelming for somebody to um 
to try and figure out how to find stuff because it's different than the last website they were on, and they're tired and cranky and um, don't have a lot of time. Uh, sometimes when you sit down with the, um, if you're a caregiver, you don't know if you have five seconds or five minutes or 50 minutes to be doing a whatever you're going to be doing, and it just really um, can be all overwhelming and and can make you feel isolating because you get frustrated and don't um, think about things, you know, to, to even think about where to find um, different groups and so on. Um, a lot of a lot of folks that I know have trouble with Facebook. Mm-hmm. I know that that's a very big popular social media thing, but for someone who's over the age of 50, it changes periodically and it's confusing to some people. And some people either love it or they hate it. <laughs> uh-huh. And it seems like some people just don't uh, want to take the time to learn it or can't. Yep. Yep, and it it is frustrating because it's always moving and shaking. <laughs> and and I'm 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 55 and and it's testing me constantly with things and you know you get those updates and it's like no don't update just I I like what what's there you know <laughs> just leave it alone I know where it is yep. and, and it stuff. seems like every yep seems like every time I want to use it they they change the picture size. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so it it is it is interesting. The other thing that I think is so important is, and this is a big mistake that I made, um, and I think it's pretty common. But I thought, and you had mentioned it too, where you you know you don't take care of yourself, and it's yes. hard to give care when you're you're not your best. And so for me, I was running so fast and so furious, you know, being a a mom, working full-time, volunteering, having extra people live at our house, plus taking care of both of my parents. I mean, I was just psychotic. I don't know how my husband even put up with me, you know, and my daughter, because I was just, I was like a machine, you know, because I had to be or I thought I had to be um, because I was so, I was trying to control everything so much and I was so thankful that my girlfriends didn't give up on me and I pushed them aside for a long long time for probably over a year and I stopped getting together because you know I had all these other important things to do and I didn't I didn't put the value on my friendships that I should have and one day I was um, at a breaking point, and some of our listeners have probably heard this story before, but I just think it's so important. And I was just ready to crack, and they had called and said, come on, just come for coffee, just come for 10 minutes. If that's all you can make, just come for 10 minutes. And I ended up staying for two hours. And we laughed and we cried, and I felt so energized by them. And I didn't know how how um, little energy I really had, how I was running on empty, until I I finally was at my breaking point and said, okay, I'll take 10 minutes, because I was, like, ready to give up on everything, you know. Um, yep. but, it was, but it was at that point I realized that you can't, you can't give it all away. You have to get rejuiced, and you have to know what, what juices you, you know, what energizes you. And I didn't know how much I missed my friends. Uh, it was such a godsend, such a godsend. And and that helped reframe, for me, how I give care. 
and realizing that I can't lose myself in someone else, that I still have to be able to maintain my own identity. And I lost. I lost who I was for for several years. Um, and And even though I made those connections with friends and I was very adamant about showing up every two weeks and carving out that time, um, even when my, my dad had passed, he had brain cancer, I didn't know who I was because I was so much a caregiver first. And it took me a year to really even figure out what, I, I mean, I knew that I enjoyed my friends, but other than that, I really didn't know, um, and, and I enjoyed my family. I, I didn't know what brought me joy. I didn't really know what I liked in life. And we can't let that go. We've got to have the balance in that, um, or I think that we should try anyways, um, is my belief. Um, because, again, we can we can be a better caregiver um, when we know who we are and why we're doing what we're doing. Absolutely. With that... Um, now, you know, we talked about kind of why Alzheimer's and other dementias are are isolating um, for for the person with the disease and family and friends, and hopefully our listeners are getting a a little better clue um, about why this disease is so different than so many others, and you know, like cancer that wasn't spoken about or AIDS, you know, um, th- those those diseases have come a long, long ways in terms of acceptability. And people don't feel as isolated. They don't feel the embarrassment and they don't feel being shunned. And, and that's why I think it's so critical that we have these conversations, that we share the knowledge. And like you said, you know, maybe you can do some research for a friend. Maybe it's you know, buying a book or passing on a, a podcast of our radio show or or a blog or going to your website and just saying, hey, check this out. This is good information. You know, these are some great resources. Um, because so often people just don't have time to do the search and destroy. And those little tidbits um, can be such a massive gift to somebody who who just doesn't have time to look. Plus, it shows that you care enough and have interest in helping them out, which which I think adds so much, um, you know, to the whole relationship piece and the balance piece there as well. Let's talk about about this free tele-summit that you have coming up because it's a it's a pretty big deal. Um, you're you're um, pulling something together that that really um, hasn't been done, or if it has, I'm not aware of it um, to this extent for Alzheimer's and other dementias. And um, the tele-summit, if I have this correct, is called Triumphing Over the Isolation of Alzheimer's Simple Solutions for Family and Professional Caregivers. Can you tell us when this is going to be and why you decided to do this? Sure. Um, well, it's originally, and all of the um, materials I've sent out so far um, indicate that it's from February 10th through 14th, but we have so many speakers now, it's, we're going to add another day, so it's going to be February 10th through the 15th okay. of this year, so it's next week. Um, 
and it's it's a way to get all of these resources to start to get all of these resources out there for people um like you said it's it's very difficult for um people to know that they even exist and there are solutions out there there are people that have um worked with alzheimers or had it in their family and they've had they've had not negative experiences with it although some of them are, are at least partially negative but they've come out of it with a feeling of triumph with a feeling of um joy and sharing that with somebody else with caregivers so that they can take some of this information and um and and run with it you know they may be able to do the same thing um with that that the that the speaker has done or they may be able to uh customize it and do something um very similar uh in their own in their own lives um just to make their lives better to make the person that they're caring for better to make that whole journey better um and it's it's also to raise awareness about alzheimer's because it it is right now very much a silent disease there um so many people don't know how extensive it is and how um it's probably going to um devastate the healthcare community in a few years just mm-hmm. because of of how many people are projected to be affected with the um baby boomers and beyond um it can certainly overwhelm the situation that we have now that's that is for sure. Do you want to talk about um who some of the speakers are that you've got cuz I know you've got a great panel of of people coming up, a great lineup. Sure. Well, you're you're the, you're the first speaker. <laughs> well, after you. <laughs> after me. Yeah, I'm the I'm the first speaker <laughs> just welcoming folks and then we have you. <laughs> so, um and I'm and I'm thrilled that you're coming by the way. Um we have um Janet Edmondson who's an inspirational speaker, writer, and health promotional profe- promotion professional. She's dedicated her life um, and ex- use, she's dedicated to using her life experiences and her inner values to support the growth and self-esteem of people that her life touches. She wrote her uh, first book, Finding Meaning with Charles, about uh, her experiences of taking care of her husband, Charles, during the five years he had a movement disorder with dementia and she was working full time she's going to be talking on the importance of positive emotions for caregivers um how it's really important um to keep positive and she's going to talk about how dementia caring for someone with dementia can drain you of the emotional health that everybody needs day to day She's going to explore research as it applies to family and professional caregivers and their emotional health, um, using science, personal stories, um, and so on to to illustrate some positive ways to get through this challenging life experience. So she's one of the speakers. Another one is um, Michael Ellenbogen, who I'm thrilled to have. I'm thrilled to have actually all of the speakers on. He was diagnosed with young onset Alzheimer's disease at the age of 49, and before he w- was diagnosed, he was an operations manager for a Fortune 500 financial institution. 
and eventually he had to have take early retirement due to difficulties with work-related tasks. He's now a world-renowned Alzheimer's and dementia advocate and has been featured nationally on syndicated television, radio, and other media outlets, and he's written for blogs, newspapers, and websites, sharing his personal perspective as a guest speaker. He's going to he's written a book um, from the corner office to Alzheimer's and he's going to be sharing his story, giving insights into how Alzheimer's affects his life in his talk, which is called um, Living with Alzheimer's. Uh, Curdy Kalsa is the COO of the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation, and she, her, she has a passion for keeping our elders healthy so that they can have a good quality of life and continue to contribute to communities. She's a lifelong yoga practitioner and also knows firsthand the impact of the lifestyle approach to healthy aging. She's going to be talking about the four pillars of Alzheimer's prevention, which is what the um, Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation uh, firmly believes uh, helps prevent Alzheimer's. They don't believe that Alzheimer's or memory loss is a normal or natural part of aging, which I also agree with. And I believe this is a a holistic approach. Elaine uh, Gansfried is a speech-language pathologist and the executive director of the National Aphasia Association. She has a variety of um, credentials, including being a fellow of the American Speech-Language Hearing Association, and she's on um, their committee on honors. She has created and managed several speech, hearing, and rehab programs in New York and and Massachusetts and is an adjunct instructor at Adelphi University Garden City, New York. She's written articles and presented regionally and nationally on a variety of topics, including aphasia, rehab, and leadership skills. She's going to be talking on Let's Communicate Strategies for Caregivers, explaining how the loss of language and difficulty communicating occurs in different types of dementia. She's going to talk about how this can lead to increased frustration and challenges for the person and family, and discussing uh, communication strategies with specific examples, which is going to be very helpful, I think, for um, caregivers to see some definite specific examples. Another speaker is Dennis Stack, who's founder of Project Storykeeper, This is um, uh, the basis of the Legacy Matters program. This is he created the Family Storekeeper course, which is now in use for over 800 hospices, home care, assisted living, and veterans centers. And he's trained more than 5,000 volunteers and students to perform the role of storekeepers in their respective communities. His talk is going to be "Building Legacy Saves Memories and Unites Family." families, explaining how the legacy building program helps preserve those life experiences certain to be lost and in the process provides an engaging and productive activity. The LegacyStories.org site allows those collective stories to be shared with family and friends while also giving those loved ones a means to provide the caregiver support. This sounds to me like it's going to be very exciting um, because I know with um, the dementia that we we dealt with in our family and then the patients that I've dealt with with dementia before, that's one of the sad things is that when the stories get changed and lost 
and the family feels as though they've they've lost an important part because they they can't get the stories of when um, the person with dementia was younger anymore. And sometimes you don't realize until they're gone how important that um, information can be to future generations. Um, Another speaker is uh, Gary Joseph LeBlanc, and he's the author of Staying Afloat in a Sea of Forgetfulness, uh, Managing Dementias and Dementia Behaviors, and co-author of While I Still Can. He's a columnist of Common Sense Caregiving in the Tampa Tribune and Hernando Today and many other health publications. He's founded the Alzheimer's and Dementia's Hospital Wristband Project, and he um, has multiple writing and speaking events um, over um, 3,000 plus days of nights of personal caregiving experience, which he which he um, draws on to help other Alzheimer's and dementia caregivers cope with the everyday challenges and emotional struggles of caring for the memory impaired. He's going to be talking about the Alzheimer's and dementia hospital wristband program, uh, how that. Uh, can affect how um, not recognizing that a patient is uh, who, when they're hospitalized is, is has dementia be, can lead to them not receiving the special care they require, and the results can be disastrous. Now, this isn't necessarily from the physicians and the nurses who know the um, the patient, but this can certainly be from other people that come into the room um, and don't know what's going on. He has a solution for that with this wristband program, and he founded that program, and it's currently being piloted at Brooksville Regional Hospital in Hernando County, Florida. That sounds really exciting to find out more about that. Yeah, it's a pretty cool project, and it's getting a lot of attention all over the world. It's starting to expand, so very, very neat. It's great, actually. Uh, That's something that, um, that, that I can see how that would you know, affect somebody that uh, comes in to transport a patient or, you know, and doesn't have access to the to the chart um, but can recognize right away that this is a dementia person. And I think that would be that would be so helpful to just take the fear from the patient out of moving to another room or something or, you know, going to have a test. Um, just sounds really exciting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, Another one is um, Harry Urban. He's going. Uh, he's from the Facebook Dementia Support Group, uh, Forget Me Not. Nine years ago, he was diagnosed with dementia, probably Alzheimer's, and says that he walked out of the doctor's office full of fear. He struggled for years with Alzheimer's, trying to understand what was happening, and realized he needed to understand what was what he was becoming, so he could help others living with this disease. He's founded the Forget Me Not um, Facebook group and also has a Spanish group. Um, and he speaks out to raise dementia awareness. And he's another one of the Purple Angels ambassadors. His talk is on uh, my thoughts on dementia, giving his thoughts about dementia from his perspective as a person living with the disease, helping uh, caregivers to better understand why persons with dementia do the things they do. He plans to explain um, what he feels needs to be done to bring awareness to this disease, improve the quality of life, and how he plans to help make it happen. 
Another speaker is Denise Craig from um, Young Onset Dementia Support Group on Facebook, and she works closely with uh, memory clinics in her area. She's cared for her mom who had um, young onset dementia, and uh, Denise now uh, provides dementia support in Queensland, Australia. She creates and administers a support group for people with young onset dementia on Facebook, and her goal is to help empower and motivate individuals to maximize their power. And her talk is Dementia Support Facing the Times. She's going to discuss um, the prevalence of young onset dementia, what makes it different, and later onset dementia, uh, what the needs of people with younger um, onset are, the purpose of, and then she's going to talk about her Facebook page and how online support groups and social media can um, help um, caregivers and and um, and people with this disease. Another speaker is Linda Hirsch, who has a very popular blog, Mommy Hero. Her mom, was Ruth, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and she notes how that brought the two of them together. And she's going to be talking about her journey giving and giving inspiration to others in her talk, My Mom, My Hero. Mark Wortman is the executive. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, Lisa does a great job, and her, her book and her blog has helped so many people, like so many of these um it, it's just it's great to hear this lineup that you've got uh, with people. Uh, so I'm sorry, you, and you were going on with Mark Wortman, I believe. Mark also. Yep. yep, he's the executive director of the Alzheimer's Disease International that you mentioned earlier, um, and he's going to be speaking on the global Alzheimer's movement, um, focusing on the worldwide impact of Alzheimer's disease and other dementias, and the efforts to fight them globally. Um, James Creasy is from Jiminy Wicket, and he is he um, five years ago he um, discovered new connections with his father in silence and the confusion of dementia, and they played croquet together, and that's how he got started with uh, Jiminy Wicket to help people make smiles for people living with dementia. He's going to be talking about. Um, Jiminy Wicket, and also Through Hopes to Hope, which is a um, a program that's an Alzheimer's-based croquet program for high schools, colleges, and senior communities. And that has expanded uh, into 100 schools and colleges across the United States, into 10 schools in the United Kingdom, and five in Australia. And he's going to discuss his projects and how they help dementia patients and caregivers with his vision for the future. Um, Tom and Karen Brenner of Brenner Pathways have created a positive approach to caregiving, um, and they use the Montessori method for dementia care. They're award-winning writers who have been published in magazines and journals both in the United States and abroad. They um, have had multiple... um, uh, presentations on radio and television, and they're co-authors of the book "You Say Goodbye and We Say Hello," and their talk is "You Say Goodbye and We Say Hello: The Montessori Method for Positive Dementia Care." They're discussing their method of fam- for family and professional caregivers. This philosophy is based on the belief that they can find the remaining strengths and spared abilities of people living with dementia, and they'll discuss the tragedies and. Ten- the strategies and techniques they developed to help caregivers and to 
reach out and stay connected to the people they love and care for. And we also have Israel Ellen, who's an expert educator with um, years of experience, international experience. He, he um, is the founder and editor-in-chief of Memory Aid magazine and memoryaid.org. This is a um, doctor-approved magazine and website to help seniors improve their memory. And he's um, gained tremendous amount of um, theoretical knowledge and practical skills of healthcare, of healthy aging and caregiver support that he hopes to share with others. He's going to talk about the six pillars of brain health, explaining that brain fitness is a key ingredient in our overall well-being and quality of life and exactly what it is. Um, He's going to have slides and we'll be um, talking about, uh, he wants to present people with the uh, skills and tools necessary to implement a successful brain fitness class at their facility or for individuals and to um, differentiate between an activity that's brain healthy versus one that's merely entertaining, which um, also could be helpful, I think, for caregivers to be doing um, activities that may um, that stimulate their own brain fitness in addition to those uh, for people that have dementia. That's the lineup so far, and it's That's an international it. lineup. Yeah, it's it's wonderful to see the number of people that you've been able to pull together um, for this. I think that this is going to be a fabulous, fabulous time. Now, how do people um, how do people listen in um, on this telesummit? If they go to um, www.caregivingwithpurpose.com forward slash telesummit. Or if they just go to www.caregivingwithpurpose.com and click on any of the telesummit banners that are up, they can sign, they can register for free, and be able to um, they will uh, be able to sign up for emails and also to lo- get a membership on the site caregivingwithpurpose.com that will provide them with the information on when the um, when each of the speakers are going to talk, we're going to have that information up later today, and also um, they'll they'll get the login information. It is going to be um, they can call in either by phone or on com- they can do it on computer, listen on computer, um, and they'll have the information available that they can do that live. And the replays will be up for 48 hours afterwards. Wonderful. So that's that's fantastic. And then after that 48 hours, then will people be able to um, purchase um, the downloads at all for this? Um, Yes. Because it sounds like it will be free during that initial time. It will be free during the initial time, (laughs) and then um, afterwards there will be a charge. If they... When they register, they have the special um, discount that they can get the... um, the downloads and the replays beyond the 48 hours for $67. And if they choose not to do that, it will be $97 later. But for um, 16 hours of of uh, jam-packed information, I don't think that's successful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, it would be great information for people to be able to to share and um, 
you know, to listen to and refer back to. <clears throat> so that'll be wonderful, absolutely wonderful for for people. And again, I'm not aware of anything like this being done prior to this extent with with this much time. And again, for it to be free, if you listen in, um, you know, if you can make yourself available. Now, what time is this going to be? You said it's going to be February um, 10th through the the 15th. Now, right, right. Yeah. Monday, mm-hmm. yeah, Monday through Friday, it will be eight, nine, and ten o'clock, ten o'clock at night Eastern. Okay. Uh, there'll be three. There'll be three a night for Monday through Friday. And then Saturday, we have one scheduled so far at 2 o'clock Eastern in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Wonderful. Then, well, Go ahead. No, no, so that's that'll be fantastic. Um, any, any other last... Uh, last uh, pieces of information that you would like to give somebody um, who is listening? Maybe it's a tip um, in terms of how to survive this process? Um, I would say um, get your get your support early before you think you need it. You know, if you're, it, get your family involved. Make sure that they understand that you're not going to do this alone. That you need that you need their support in some way. They may not be able to actually do the physical caregiving, but if they can't, they can give you support in other ways. Even one of the things that that was really great for me was my sister made sure that every day she brought me a joke. <laughs> you know, <laughs> she found something on the internet that was funny or something. She made sure that I laughed every day, and that I can't. That is one of the best and fastest. Re- Producers of stress is to actually get a couple of belly laughs in a day. So if what you can find some, thing. yeah, I would just have a designated um, laugh person, if nothing else, to to make you laugh. Uh huh. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, because um, that is humor is something that is lost with disease, and a lot of times people don't think that it's proper. Um, but it it is just one of those energizers and things that is so so important um, for us to be able to survive and, and feel well. Yeah, and, and I do uh, call it healthy. I call it healthy humor rather than cynical humor. Yep. Well, good. Well, Dr. Ina Gilmore, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I really, really appreciate. Um, all the work you're doing. I'm looking forward to being part of your telesummit. Again, that's February 10th through the 15th and would really encourage people to go to your site and um, and check that out. Again, that's www.caregivingwithpurpose.com. You'll be able to see more information about uh, about the Telesummit, plus all the other resources uh, that Ina has there. So thank you again for joining us. I really do appreciate it very much, and we will talk next week. Yes, and thank you very much for having me. We're going to do our little mid-show lineup and uh, some highlights here. Um 
for those of you that are just listening in, we were just talking with Dr. Ina Gilmore, and uh, she is going to be doing this uh, fabulous telesummit. Um, I, I believe it's the first of its kind. For um, five days, uh, she's going to have three speakers on, I believe, each day. Uh, so there'll be lots of great information. Again, you can go to www.caregivingwithpurpose.com to get more information on that. I do want to highlight some information that we had on um, our last radio show. We had uh, Alzheimer's Disease International Executive Director Mark Wortman with us. And we also had uh, Trin Rose Seeley with us. And uh, that was a great show. So if you haven't listened to that, all the shows are recorded. So you can go back and listen. And next week on the 11th, uh, we're going to have Jerry Sandusky on. And no, it's not a sex offender. Um, but this is Jerry Sandusky, who is a broadcaster with the Baltimore um with Baltimore in the NFL, and we're going to be talking about a book he has written called Forgotten Sundays. And we're going to have a discussion regarding um, what exactly is, is going on, um, to his knowledge, with the NFL and their involvement, um, you know, kind of with this lawsuit. We're going to talk about his personal journey with his dad and his book, Um and how maybe we can get the NFL to be even more involved on a public level with this. I also want to remind people that the last Dementia Chats was January 28th, and on that episode, those are all free webinars that are, again, recorded. You can go back and watch those. Um, we discussed the importance of relationships and connecting and how to tell somebody um, you know, tell what somebody wants, even though that they can't speak, um, which is very, very important um, to be able to do, and how other people's moods can affect one another. And our next Dementia Chat will be February 11th. Uh, I also want to encourage people to join the um, International Collaborative Resource Directory on our page, and you can do that by just going to Alzheimer's Speaks dot com and click the big gold button at the top that says partnering options share that you care just go ahead and register with us and um, we will get you in from there i'm going to take a call because um, it looks like we might have a guest on that that actually is international so um i you are live and on the air do you have a question or a comment for us uh, hello, um, my name is Dr. Eva Maxini. I'm calling from Recognition Health in London. Um, oh, I was asked to give you a call because of the discussion you're having at the moment on Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And did um, you were asked to call in? Do you know who, yeah, in terms was, of what topic? Um, it was uh, Liz Puller from Medici Global, um, and also um, in connection with TowRx and the um, disease-modifying therapy for Alzheimer's disease and the uh, final phase clinical trials that are going on at the moment for people with mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease. Wonderful. Well, I am going to let you go ahead and tell us a little bit more on on that because, to be honest with you, I did not get the script for that. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, you can, if you can, I, fill me in, and our audience 
what all is going on with that clinical trial, that would be wonderful. Okay, certainly. Um, we'll just, I'm, as I said, calling from Recognition Health in London, England, and um, we're one of the centres for the Phase 3 international clinical trials. Um, and these are for people who have, as I said, mild to moderate um, cognitive impairment and a known diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. Um, the reason why um, this is so important is because we obviously um, want to make people aware of this opportunity and the drugs which um, are now in the final phase of clinical trial um, are designed to slow down the progress of the disease as opposed to just the symptomatic treatments which are available currently on the market. Um, and people who do manage to get into this clinical trial, if they're eligible, um, will be able to receive the drug on a named patient basis uh, going forward until the drugs then become available on the market. Um, so the, the drug is a, a tau drug um, uh, produced by a company called Tau RX, um, and um, it's it's really a sort of an opportunity for um, people with Alzheimer's disease in the relative, relatively mild stage to prolong that sort of mild stage, and hopefully what we want to try to get to is a point where there's Alzheimer's disease without dementia. Well, that that would just be a wonderful place for us to get. Um, can you tell us how big the study is on this? Uh, yeah, there are multiple sites um, or centers across the world. Um, and there's actually there's two drugs. There's the Tau drug with uh, TauRx, and there's also an amyloid drug, which um, is produced by a pharmaceutical company, Lilly. Um, and there are centers uh, literally right across the world um, that are recruiting patients uh, currently um, for these trials. Um, so there's there's um, various different organisations which you can actually contact as well online uh, to find out about this. One of them, um, and in fact the group who suggest I give you a call, are a group called Medici Global. And um, if you contact their website, then wherever you are in the world, they'll be able to advise you as to where the centre most convenient for you is located and also to help you to determine whether or not you're likely to be eligible for the clinical trial. Okay. And so they'll um people can just call in um to that yeah, I'll, I think I'll get a number and, <clears throat> and post yeah. that on the blog. Yeah, or or via the website. Um, and I'm sure most of your listeners are obviously in the U.S. I mean, obviously in the U.K., our centre is, is Recognition Health, um, and it's all on the website and everything. But probably worldwide, and certainly in the U.S., the most sensible thing is to contact Medici Global, either via their website link, um, and I can send on to you later um, their contact numbers and everything. Okay, that would be that would be wonderful. Um, now, this is the is this in the third phase, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, it's in the very it's in the very final phase um, of clinical trial, and and that's really the reason why, um, although it's a double blind randomized trial, which means that everybody who successfully um, randomized onto the trial, um, some people will receive drug and some people will receive placebo. But at the end of the 18-month trial period, then everybody um, with the TAU trial will be able to receive the drug. Um, the uh, the sort of other thing which is obviously really very important is that 
if you are already taking symptomatic treatment for Alzheimer's disease, then you continue to take that whilst you're on the trial. So you don't okay. really lose out. So you continue taking the treatment you'd normally be taking, um, but this is an opportunity on top of that and in, and really sort of gives you a chance to potentially access um, this disease, these disease-modifying type drugs um, either almost immediately on joining the trial if you're randomized to drug group or within um, 18 months if you are in the placebo group. Wonderful. Well, this is uh, this is fantastic news, and it's a great opportunity for people to be part of this study. And again, um, for a study to get this far along the chain, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a lot so happened nice <laughs> as well. Because yeah. uh, you know, it can, it can take so long, you know, for the this process uh, for a drug to get approved mm. and go through everything. What? Um, mm. How long will this this process go on yet? Um, well, the uh, the recruitment on the particular trial for the for the TAU drug that Medici Global are um, recruiting for um, will potentially end sort of um, certainly during during this year, um, maybe sort of towards the middle of the year. Um, the exact time is not known because it depends upon how many people are recruited and how quickly. Um, but it is something if people are interested, they do need to um, contact Medici Global or certainly express an interest as quickly as possible. Okay, wonderful. Well, I um, I thank you so much for for calling in. Is there any other information that you would like to share with us, or does that pretty much um, cover it? No, I think that pretty much covers it. But um, what I will do is, as I said, I will um, forward some contact information for any of your listeners who are interested. Oh, that would be fantastic. I, I really appreciate it very much, and um, we look forward to getting that information out to our audience. So thank you so much for calling in today. That's a pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Thank Bye-bye. You. Bye now. Bye. I'm going to go ahead and introduce our next guest here, who I am very excited to, to have with us. One is a personal friend of mine and who is just a little guru um, in the industry, Jane Claremont. And Jane is nationally recognized as a leader and a consultant in providing care for those living with Alzheimer's disease and related dementia. Um, Her focus and her philosophy is really on the individual quality of life um, and that that shouldn't end just because a person gets diagnosed. She's the president and CEO of English Rose Suites, which is a proven and successful residential model for memory care located right here in, um, in Minnesota. And the effectiveness of her residential um, care program is is really known around the world. She she's really doing some very very cool things, and because of this, um, she has really translated what she's doing in residential care into a new service called. Um, be Home by English Rose Suites, which is a home care company. And so she's focused on offering the same, you know, super service that people get in her homes, um, in their own homes as well. So welcome, Jane. How are you today? Lori, I'm wonderful. Thank you for having me today. 
Well, I'm ex- I'm really excited to be uh, talking about what all you're up to because I, I just, you know, this whole day we're talking about education and the importance of awareness and things. But before I get into questions, I also want to introduce our, our second guest that will be with us um, during our, our second half here. And that is Deb Cowell, and she grew up in North Dakota, and she has seven brothers, and her parents all live there as well. She graduated with a degree in business management from the University of North Dakota in 82, and then Deb went on to receive her BS in nursing from the University of Mary in 86, and she's currently completing um, her education from the University of Florida for geriatric care management. She has spent the majority of her nursing career caring for the dying as a hospice nurse in um, Fargo, North Dakota. And she left that position about three years ago in order to spend more time with her own parents, Dwayne and Doris. And her dad, Dwayne, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease about eight years ago. And since then, she has learned to appreciate the depth of sorrow, the uncertainty, the vulnerability, and the fear that's associated with caring for someone who you love. Um, So she now devotes her time along with her other family members to provide hope, encouragement, and a deeper understanding to those caring for people with memory loss, Um, Both professional and community members, they see the need on both sides. Deb currently lives in Fargo with her husband, and she's blessed with three children and a beautiful granddaughter. So welcome, Deb. How are you today? I'm doing very well, Lori. Thank you so much for having me on your program. I'm excited to have you and Jane with us today because this is um this is really a pretty cool thing that your family is doing. Um you know, they're seeing a need and they're saying we can make a difference. And um you know, through through your connection with Jane, um now you're going on this this tour and um promoting her because she she just is a wonderful source and you know that's something that people can do. Everybody can make a difference, um, and and I think that that's just a beautiful thing that you guys collaborated together to get this done. So before I get into kind of what Jane is going to be doing on this on this tour, um, Deb, I do want to ask you a, a question, and that is um, because you know you've been caring for your your family plus. You know, you have this professional experience as well in the medical field. So how has your perspective changed from being a nurse caring for people versus being a daughter seeking care? What What's changed in your mind through this whole process? Lori, I, I, I have gained a new appreciation um, for the complexities and the, and the depth of emotion involved with this disease for both the person with dementia and and the family members. Um, I always assumed unconsciously that as people lose their memory, uh, they lose really a part of their humanity in that I I just assumed that they didn't have the same need that I did for meaningful connections or for feeling productive every day or being helpful to others uh, for accomplishing something meaningful every day. And uh, really those are basic needs each human being has. And I just didn't give that enough enough 
credibility um, when I was working professionally. And then I also assume that, that the grief that family members experience as this disease progresses in their loved one's life is it is primarily a grief related to what they have lost in their relationship with that person and also um, with, with their loved one. Um, so, you know, grieving what dad used to be like or what, what this relationship used to look like. And that is certainly a part of the grief. But I really didn't anticipate and I didn't really have any idea how the relationship between my dad and myself um, or other people with memory loss and their loved ones can really deepen and flourish and grow during the course of this disease. And that has been a real surprise to me and it's really been an incredible blessing because I feel like I've gotten an opportunity to know my dad better now than I ever have in my whole life. And um, the disease has just really allowed me to see him more than just a very strong father and a capable leader and a successful businessman. You know, he is now sharing his his faith, his art, um, his time, his feelings, his emotions, his areas of vulnerability with me. Um, And I never had that opportunity to see those, those parts of my dad before. So... So he's still my dad. I, I don't feel like our roles have been reversed, but I, I've just had this incredible opportunity to really get to know him as a real human being, you know, a person um, for perhaps really the first time in my life in this way. And that, that really matters to me, and I don't think I understood that um, as, a, as a professional prior to this experience with my dad. Well, and I, I can definitely understand everything you're saying because I've been on this journey for 30 years with my own mom. And, you know, you always hear about unconditional love and, and things, but it, it's just amazing the connections and um, it, the different levels of that unconditional love. I guess just totally just blew me away um, because there was always right. more. Every time I thought, you know, oh, it's, it's kind of over, there really isn't anything anything left here, um, there was always more. And, and that just fascinated me, absolutely fascinated me. Um, now, Jane, can you tell us how the two of you um, met and how this collaboration came about? Absolutely. About a year ago, I was visiting with the North Dakota Alzheimer's Association about uh, an opportunity to, to speak in front of their, they have what's called a Great Plains Conference. And when we spoke about the opportunity, I wanted to do something in terms of how I kind of approach a presentation when the medical world kind of is introduced in the same presentation. And I had the distinct honor to have Dr. Brett Hockey from Minneapolis, who I think, in my opinion, is one of the best neurologists in the country. So as we were crafting the opportunity and what we wanted to do, of course, Lori, because you know I'm so shy, I really tried (laughs) to ask Dr. Hockey to approach this differently. He does an incredible um, outline in a presentation, but I wanted it to be weaved in such a way that it wasn't distinct to one silo of medical and one silo of practice, that it was just an interchangeable opportunity for dialogue as well as really to hopefully bring an audience to a deeper understanding. And so while I was doing that presentation, and I didn't know that Deb Cowell was in the audience, um, after that presentation was over, she came up to me. And because we're both from North Dakota, my original home state, 
it's not that big of a state. But at the time I lived there, less than 700,000 people. So we were kind of connecting the dots of who we knew. And that was kind of the start point standing after the conference in dialogue. Okay. Well, that's, you know, small world. Um, you know, when you think about how how these connections have have been made and, um, again, for for a family to step up and say, you know, we want to make a difference, we want to be able to promote what it is you're talking about on a different level because there's just not enough education out there um, is, is something else. I'm going to go ahead and throw another question back to Deb because I think part of, um, and I might be wrong and correct me, but I think part of, you know, this whole process is there is so much fear and stress and vulnerability that when you're in that space, um, for so many of us, we don't want anybody to feel that. And so is that one of the things that kind of got you to um, interested in, in helping with this educational process? It, yes, it is, Lori. Um, you're right, the areas of vulnerability and, and the, the fear and the, the desperate um, need for resources and for support and for um, the choices and, and, and just not chasing one crisis after another, uh, which is something I know you're passionate about, Lori, is just moving toward comfort versus crisis care. You know, it's something that, that as a family we have really felt um, and unfortunately, we felt a lot of the the, um, the crisis, you know, moving from one one facility to another, or moving from one crisis to another, I should say, um, has has resulted in a in a lot of stress for us. That that um, you know, plan as you as you might or as you want to to plan for the future, it's still very difficult to do that. So, so yes, if we can um, be of some assistance in helping to avoid these kind of mistakes or some of the problems that we've encountered as a family, and if we can help support other people do that, um, we sure appreciate the opportunity to do that. And, and we believe that a large part of that is, is promoting education and identifying ourselves as a family that's also struggling with this. Um, part of the, the challenge is that there's still a stigma associated with this disease, and, and we're not going to be able to help one another if we refuse to identify ourselves. And so as a family, we, we want to identify ourselves as fellow strugglers and, and partners with, with uh, different living environments and with different people and churches and community uh, members to, to do what we can to partner together and pool our resources and do what we can to, to enhance the care for, for this population of very valuable people. Well, wonderful. Now, this tour is taking place um, the 10th through the 15th, which is kind of um, interesting just because of the fact that the, the telesummit that we just had on was the 10th through the 15th, too. So I think that it's just like must be a good karma week for, for education, which is absolutely wonderful. Um, Jane, can you tell us, you know, what's going to differentiate um, your training when you're going out and speaking, you know, in Fargo and Minot and uh, Williston and, and Bismarck? You're kind of just doing this tour all over. What can people expect? Okay. Well, I, I want you to know that before I start with that part of the conversation, having somebody like Deb Cowell, who is so incredibly eloquent, number one, but number two, being able to have a family member 
that really has a deepened understanding of dementia for me is part of the incredibleness of this opportunity is when a family really has kind of come to a different level and is able to express and explore the conversation. Her credibility in that marketplace when we sit down and talk with families or we talk with individuals that are the caregivers professionally is far different than mine. Mine comes from many, many years of being a professional from my standpoint. So for me, knowing her knowledge base and how brilliant she is and how to deliver a message is equally important for people to learn. I think that's the other part, Lori, and you and I have had the opportunity to to be on stage and in terms of how our message is delivered. I deliver a message far different, I think, than typical educators. And part of it is it's making sure to understand really what the audience needs in terms of knowledge, where they're struggling, and I very much key in and pinpoint based on if it's a professional caregiver or if it's a family caregiver because the needs and wants somewhat are different. And as we were creating this opportunity, I said to Deb, and the other really important person that we have not talked about today is she's the head, the field director from North Dakota, and uh, Gretchen Dobrovich is going to be also with us. I said to Gretchen and Deb as we were creating this, I said, Gretchen, I want this to be completely different than anything you've ever presented from the Alzheimer's Association. And not because the content hasn't been valuable, but in terms of how I want it to resonate, I want it to resonate at a knowledge level that is far different than what people have originally heard in the state. And beyond that, Lori, it's the practical experience then to take it back to your home where your loved one is living and how you're going to start immediately applying what you've learned, along with same with the professional caregivers. We're getting that opportunity to speak to both audiences and do the same thing. And so many of professional caregivers, and I'm talking about CNAs and nursing assistants and home health aid workers and nurses, both professional licensed practical nurses and RNs, and dietary staff that work right alongside people with dementia, and maintenance staff, everybody should be present in the opportunity to learn because then you can start to see the shift in an organization in terms of the quality metrics of much, much better care. So I think that's, if you ask the key question, what's the differentiator, it's everything I just said. Okay. Well, and that that makes sense. Um, And I think it's important you know, when we're delivering messages, and, and, and many times, it, you know, you can go to a conference and it, it doesn't do that, but people have to be able to walk away and do something with it. They have to feel empowered. Um, they have to feel like they kind of belong to a tribe, that they're that they're not alone, um, and to hopefully, you know, help lift them in terms of, of this vulnerable time um that they're in and and I think that you'll you guys will do a beautiful job, um, the three of you in terms of of getting that message across. Um Well, Lori, I also want to share as a side note, in one environment I will remember years ago, and it was an environment where care was being delivered, a woman walked up to me after I think it was at midpoint in the day of training and she said, I have worked for fifteen years and I have never gotten this training. And I sat there and just thought to myself, how many caregivers across the country have never been given the opportunity to really learn at a level that connects? And that's 
that's what the most important part of this is being able to really connect with people. Yep. Yep, definitely, because the tasks are important, but um, so much of it is our delivery style and our attitude and our approach um, in terms of that engagement and that connection and, and focusing on the relationship, um, that this is a person, you know, um, that, that that can still communicate, might be differently, um, and still, still deserves our respect. Um, Deb, on your journey... What unexpected joys did you experience um, through this whole caregiving process? There have been many of them, Lori, um, but really the um, some of the, the biggest joy is just being able to to just see my new dad emerge. Um, and certainly, there's been uh, the sadness with seeing some of his old skills and his strengths. Um, really disappear before our very eyes, and that is certainly sad. But we have learned as a family uh, that there is a part of Dad that, that's emerged that we never knew existed, and neither did he. And um, it's been kind of funny over the years. My mother has always been a, a really a role model on volunteerism, and she's always wanted my dad to volunteer for this or for that. And, and his approach was always, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing well, and it's worth getting paid for. You know, so they've kind of butted heads over that over the years, and, and Mom still continues to try to get him to volunteer and to do those things, and Dad still wants to get paid for whatever he's doing. And it still really is very important to Dad to have something productive to do and to and to, to see something um, that he's produced or that he's created or that he's got a, an assignment to do, uh, that he's going to work, as he's always done. And um, I have a sister who is an artist, and she she decided that she was going to introduce my dad to art, and and um, she got him a wood burner and some art pieces, some wood pieces, and taught him how to use his wood burner. Well, then they they moved from that to painting the creations that he's made, and and um, evolved from from the painting to the varnishing, and then he started moving to he's got 31 grandchildren and eight grand great grandchildren, and so he was given these assignments. And we signed contracts with him just like he's used to doing. We oftentimes had a contract for him to sign that, that um, he was contracting with us to, to complete this work. And we started paying him. My brother, who's an attorney, when Dad started losing motivation for doing this just as a volunteer, my brother Mike said, well, Dad, I think we should, you know, this is important work and we value your work and, and we want to pay you for this. Well, that opened up a whole new meaningful connection for Dad. And he said... <laughs> Oh, well, okay. Well, sure, I'll do, I'll do it. How much do you pay you know? So we started at $25, and, and he did it for quite a while, and he was on, on in the car with my sister one day going to Hobby Lobby to get more wood. And he said, are you the one that's, that's kind of got me going with this with this wood stuff? And she said, yeah, I am. Well, I've been doing it for quite a while. Do you think I'm doing a pretty good job? And she said, well, yeah, you're doing a great job, Dad. It's just everybody appreciates it so much, and... He really caught on quickly, and he's doing so well. And he said, well, I think I deserve a raise then, don't you? <laughs> so we went from $25. She said, well, sure. She said, how about $35? And he said, well, I was thinking more like 40 <laughs> So you know, he's once a businessman, always a businessman. But that has been an incredible enlightenment for us as a family. On, on You know, that part of Dad is never going to disappear. That's just part of his DNA. And you know he needs to he needs to be productive. He needs to be paid for his work because that's that's his 
his language. That's what he understands as, as being proof that he's valuable and what he's doing uh, has value. So, you know, as a family, we've, we've really journeyed to this together, and it's been really a, a, a pleasure in so many ways to learn those kinds of things. So as I look through my list of joys, unexpected joys, I would probably say that that's probably been one of the highlights is just to see this this new man emerge and to, to be able to meet his needs in meaningful ways where he feels like he still has value um, to us and others. Oh, that's a that's a beautiful story, and I think it's got just great lessons to us in terms of value and purpose, you know, yes. um, and yes. that the in, the intrinsic person doesn't leave, you know, yes, what and that we have to we have to meet them where they are and respect that and embrace that. And so I, I think that's wonderful how you how you all worked with that. That's brilliant actually. Um so thank you for sharing sharing that story. Um Jane, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about how has the focus of dementia care changed over the years? You know, you've you've been in this a long time. What have you seen as some of the changes, and, and what are some things that you'd still like to see change that you, you don't think are happening um, maybe the way they should or as rapidly as they should? Okay. Well, I'm going to kind of first start from the medical side, being that I've been watching in terms of diagnosis and what that has looked like for almost 30 years. And I really think that we've come a long way, Lori, in terms of how a diagnosis is obtained um, it used to be years ago, and I have to be careful because I never want to disrespect a medical doctor, but I always would ask the family, who did this diagnosis? And over the years, we've gone from the general practitioner to more of the neurology piece. And for me, that's a critical point because it not only gives the value of what it is dementia, and then we start to get more specific what type and for a professional, I think it's very critical when we're teaching staff and we're teaching families what type of dementia that we're dealing with, we're really dealing with some different nuances, and I really explore that part of the education. I think we've come a long way in that in terms of how the diagnosis is gathered and gained. I think the other thing, Lori, that we're making strides in, and this has probably been my bailiwick for 20 years is about the use of psychotropics. At least I think we're at the table now and we're in conversation about medication usage. Years ago, we just it was a blanketed response. Um, most of the medical professionals would look at you like, well, that's just the protocol. And I do think we're coming along the way in terms of the benefits of understanding the why and what has happened with medication and why. It's been some overprescribed because of the lack of education and environments. And I'll give an example, and I have one last point, where I was down in North Carolina and I was consulting with a group of, it was a care provider group, it was assisted living. And it was early in the morning when I came in to kind of, I always start to be the observer first. And about 9.30 I recognized out of 21 residents in that environment, 15 were all sleeping. So I went to asked the nurse if I could look at the MAR. Well, the MAR showed distinctly that 15 out of 21 had uh, medication usage of Ambien overnight, which led me through a whole series of exploring to understand we had a very untrained staff 
and, and when I say untrained, it's nursing, RNs, LPNs, as well as CNAs. And that becomes kind of the modus operandi. When you don't understand the disease, you don't understand the approach, medication becomes the plethora of opportunity. So I think we're making some strides, but I think we have a long way to go. But I do see it improving. The last thing in terms of, and it's going to be part of the dialogue next week, is the language. The language of dementia is its own language, and that's part of our title, and it's being able to look at language like behavior. And, Lori, you and I know, and you and I talked about this, that, in my opinion, has become and was used as a very negative communication between a staff member and another staff related to a person living with dementia. So because of that language or that label of behavior, we never went to look towards the why. And I think we're starting to get better at that. I was part of a U.S. Senate Aging Committee, Special Committee, a few years ago looking at all of those aspects of dementia, and we're actually going to reconvene this summer again in Washington, D.C., and one of the huge changes that I think we made during that summit, that day summit, is the word behavior is now behavioral expression. And so what is that person's unmet need? So I think, you know, in terms of, Lori, you've been living with a mother with this disease for a long time. You started to become an educator X amount of years ago, and you still know that we can scratch our head and say there's so much to do. But being able to have a radio show where you can start to really have this open dialogue I think is critical, and I think like the honor of being with the Lifford family in North Dakota to be able to really help people across the state with the Alzheimer's Association look at this differently. It's going to take continual opportunities like this. Yeah, I I so agree, and I I think the um, you know it it just takes having an education uh, a, an educational conversation um one that doesn't scare people that's not talking over people's heads but talking mm-hmm. in everyday terms and and um using everyday real life examples of of what it's like and that it's not always going to be perfect um i would agree i think on the psychotropic medications um things are really really coming along there um in terms of people looking at things differently i personally would like to get rid of the word behavior altogether because to me it's just yeah. a reaction and and you know we label it a behavior when it doesn't fit in our little box in our little world <laughs> then it becomes an issue um but again we're still we're making great great strides at even recognizing you know what are those trigger points that are that are causing that because everybody is reacting you know in some fashion we all do it um and you know we get in trouble when it doesn't fit in the box um of the, of the people that were around. So I think that that's great. What is your thought about um, getting, you know, both medical professionals and, you know, families kind of speaking the same language in terms of this disease? Because I think that's just been a massive barrier as well where we haven't been talking openly, um, using knowledge that, that's understandable on both sides. Well, in Lori, you know, even in talking about somebody like Dr. Hockey and being able to ask somebody like Dr. Hockey 
who is so approachable, who is so knowledgeable, and is able to bring it down to a level, like you and I said, for the common man like myself to understand is so vital. And I think the Alzheimer's Association across the country, and particularly in Minnesota region and North Dakota region, they have done an outstanding job. I was chair of the board back in the early 2000s, and at that time, you know, getting in front of a neurologist or getting in front of a GP or or a geriatrician was, they were God, and it was really difficult to kind of like getting into partnership. I think we're doing such a better job of that as well, and that we have doctors sitting at the table. Um, if you remember that task force that the governor appointed many people in Minnesota to to try to help Minnesota become the first dementia capable, as you know, and I talk about capable mm-hmm. versus friendly states some years ago. I think that was starting to be kind of opening the top where physicians were there, where family members or people living with dementia were there, and where professionals were starting to talk differently. Um, I really feel like the Alzheimer's Association has really been in a pivotal role in trying to work with physicians in communities because it used to be you got the diagnosis and you were pushed off out the door. Yesterday I was with Cleveland Clinic for a few hours in the morning in Nevada and that was one of their modus operandi conversations that they're trying in the Nevada market to really look at it and say, once we do that diagnosis now, what is our job? How impactful can we be in supporting this family and being on the journey with them? And that's unique. Lori. Yeah, and and I think it's a critical, critical step because one of the things I know that, that families would say all the time, and again, uh, Dr. Hockey and Health Partners is doing a wonderful job here in Minnesota um, with their specialty clinic, but, you know, I, I can't tell you the number of stories I've heard, and I'm sure you guys have heard them too, where people go in for a diagnosis and they go, see in six months, see in a year. Yep. <laughs> And there's just nothing given to them. It's like, go Google it. <laughs> you know, here's your prescription. Yeah. And and that's it. And that is so devastating to a family member um, because you just don't have a clue. And with that, I'm going to throw, pull Deb back into the conversation. Um, Deb, what kind of experience, can I ask, did you guys have with, with the diagnosis with your dad? Were you given resources or were you one of those that was saying, you know, we'll see in six or nine months? Well, with, with that diagnosis, it seems, um, Lori, that it's been more of a gradual kind of coming to terms with a diagnosis. Um, he, he has been assessed at, at Mayo Clinic and, and again at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and, and then more local um, um, consultations have been have been performed as well. Um, so it's been kind of a, a gradual process for us, and um, you know, I, I'd have to say there's just been a big difference between. Um, Providers and, and the type of support, or or their availability to us, they're you know giving us phone numbers and saying if you need anything, you know here's the number, here's where you can call, this is what you can do, um, as far as contacting them, you know for future help. Um, I don't know what that would have looked like had we done that, um, what that support would have looked like, but there was an offer. I'm thinking of two of the the um, providers that we met with um, were were. Um, you know, quite gentle with that. I can think of a, another provider, a neurologist, that that um, wondered why why we even wanted to know the diagnosis. Um, we were questioning whether or not Dad had Lewy body dementia because um, that is in his family. His sister was 
uh, autopsied upon her passing, and and she was found to have Lewy body dementia. So, so we were you know really interested in finding out if this might be Lewy body as opposed to the Alzheimer's type of dementia. And um, and he flat out asked, why do you care? You know, what does it matter? And um, mm-hmm. he it was just it was just stunning to me that there would be that kind of um, ignorance on every level from a neurologist. <clears throat> So I have to say that, you know, there's been a variety of responses that we've received um, from people, um, from providers um, with that. But I I really hear what you're saying, and I appreciate that, and how wonderful would it be, you know, if there was an automatic referral to um, some resource or somebody that's been through this before, uh, if there could be some type of a um, connection made with, with people that have experienced this disease firsthand with, with a, a new newly diagnosed um, person and family member, I think it'd be a fantastic um, connection to make, and, and maybe that's possible. You know, I, mm-hmm. I I think the conversation is valuable to have, and, and um, I, I, I think it'd be fantastic. Wonderful. <clears throat> I I agree. And and we're we're making strides. You know, the conversation yeah. is coming much easier. Um it's and it's coming from all different angles. And I think one of the most, you know, powerful things is people are realizing how many um friends and family are dealing with this that they didn't know. People are starting to ask the questions, they're starting to see the signs and um <clears throat> wanting to know how can they how can they support, how can they help, which is a, a great, great shift. Um Jane, can you tell our audience, you know, how can people kind of shift from that fear and frustration to joy in their relationships with people with dementia? Well, I think it, it starts first with the willingness on the part of the person that's the care partner, the family member, to, you know, I, I heard you speak earlier today about joy and laughter, particularly this woman who was speaking earlier today. And mm-hmm. I have used an example for years in terms of in teaching individuals, family members, and staff. And now it kind of plays out like this. When I was a young girl and I was in high school, I lived in North Dakota, and there was a daycare center. And this is a true story in Bismarck. It was directly behind my home. And I would listen to the children, and I would be in high school. I'd be out working in maybe my mother's garden or something, and it was directly behind me. So I could hear the sounds of laughter, and I could hear the sounds of crying. And it was interesting how I responded, even in high school. I would to start laughing with the kids when I heard them laughing. And when I would hear somebody that was crying, some of the time I'd pick up the phone and I'd call the daycare person inside and say, you know, you have a child that needs to get inside your doorway, blah, blah, blah. I became a caregiver, I could tell, Lori, very early on (laughs) in terms of that. (laughs) But what was evident was the laughter in laughing from the gut. So I take that a step further. And when I think about when, you know, if you think about your mom, you've told me stories about your mom, and you literally start, your whole body, I see you laugh from your gut, Lori. Even today, there was a level of laughter at different times. It is about being able to kind of peel away all the layers of, kind of like even what Deb said, the responsibility of her father being responsible and now being able to kind of be light-hearted more lighted in terms of listening because if you listen to a person with dementia, there is some incredible, fascinating, funny things that they say. 
And um, when they're frustrated, they say things as well because of us not understanding. But I think it's about really starting to think about your own child or a situation that has been so darn funny. And I use it, and I'll use it in the clip when we're um, together next week, Deb. And it is a child that about a year ago, the Today Show kind of took it viral because this little baby laughed at his father when he just tore the paper. And this little kid just started laughing. And, I mean, and he just became this just energizer bunny of laughter. Whenever you play that for anybody on YouTube, everybody starts laughing. So Mm -hmm. it's being able to look at where do we find the lightheartedness. Um, I tell a story about a woman with dementia that she came out of her room one day and she came into the lobby of a large assisted living that I used to run 20-plus years ago. And she was sitting there, and she was just having casual conversation while another person that was her good friend came into my office, and she whispered in my ear, Jane? And she named the person, and she said, she's got her underwear on the outside of her pants. And I just started to laugh, thinking, okay, I can see that description, and yet I don't want her to feel any sort of embarrassment. And so it was being able to take her, because of the level of dignity that I want for her, and bring her to her room, and I peeled seven layers off of this woman, Laurie. I mean, it was three mm-hmm. pairs of underwear, um, it was a tent, and it was three pairs of pants. But when you describe that to people that are caregivers, care partners, whomever, and you try to look at it on the sense of this is what happens, and yet how are we going to be joyful? How are we going to be, you know, feeling different about it? It's starting to step back, and it's starting to be less um severe in our thinking and it's it's getting away from the sorrow because i'm sure deb when you got the diagnosis for your dad the sorrow of your family was just so deepening because you didn't know about dementia all you heard about you know from the president reagan diagnosis and what can happen and i really believe Lori, like you do and deb like you have that you really can come to a different place i was talking to a daughter yesterday and she was telling me her mother is using the, the F word consistently, and one of her brothers is so upset by, quote, her behavioral expression that he talks about the anxiety of being a son and that he would prefer that her death process become quicker than not because it's so hard to watch. And what I described to that daughter is that can all change once you understand the language. Because once you do yep. know it, then the laughter and the joyfulness and the touch and all of that will start to happen. Very true. Very, very true. Um, and I think we've we've probably all been there. Um, Deb, have you been through that process where there's something where it's just very embarrassing for you at the time or uncomfortable that your dad went through? Um you know, either for yourself or for a family member. I I don't think it's uncommon. You know, it's kind of part of the process of learning how to cope. Right. Yes, we have been through those experiences, yes. And and it's just just an important step to, you know, I, I think it's just that kind of important step that says, you know, life doesn't have to be this serious. And, mm-hmm. and we get mm-hmm. so... Um, so much of our angst comes from what will someone else think? 
you know, we're we're trying to fit in the box, we're trying to be accepted, we're, we, you know, because that's what we do. We try to measure up to everybody else's expectations. And this disease really tells you, hey, let it go. You can't yeah. control yeah. it. And it's really not that important, and it can be explained if somebody wants to listen. And if they're not open to it, that's okay, too. Let it go. You know, don't lose your relationship. From a, from a different, just a, another um, take on that, though, uh, Lori, it's, it's not always um, possible to, to do that, I don't think, to, to be more lighthearted with it. And Jane, I'm interested in your perspective on this as well, mm-hmm. but... You know, in our experience, there's been some really high risks associated with those behavioral expressions of dad. You know, when he does get yep. agitated or he, he um, strikes out or whatever he might do, even just a, mostly it's, it's more of a verbal aggression that we've seen with, with my father. And and there is a, there's a very a keen sense of vulnerability on the part of our family because you don't... You don't want him to get discharged. You don't want him to fail, you know, or to flunk the, yep. the adult day program. You, there's a lot of intensity and a lot of need on the part of the family to protect him, you know, from another transition, another crisis, to to manage those those behavioral expressions and to avoid them. And you know, it's it's a, a very much a keen sense of vulnerability that I have felt because I I've seen professionally family members who have had to had to hear, you know, I'm sorry, your your loved one will need to be transferred. You'll need to be moved to who knows where in the middle of the state because there's no openings. There's waiting lists all over Bismarck or Fargo or wherever it might be. So it's um it's a, it's great when you have an opportunity to 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 treat those uh, behavioral expressions in a more lighthearted way or to be able to laugh at them. But sometimes the implications of those behavior expressions is very serious and and very much a crisis that is keenly felt and and very difficult um to navigate through emotionally and and just physically i mean where where will dad go if he gets discharged from from Excellent that? You know, what will we do next well and, and i also so, i so but Deb, from that perspective, I have you pause because when I received an email from you one day and I read the email from start to finish about what was going on with your father. Your dad was in a, an adult day setting, and he decided, and I believe it was all tied to boredom because there was nothing going on, that, well, there's work to be done across the street, so therefore I'm going to leave this place, and I'm going to go to where there's work that needs to be done. And if I do that work, again, I'm going to have a meaningful existence as a person because that's what's important to me. And it was all, in my opinion, again, and I don't want to generalize, but it was because of lack of staff knowledge of how important he needs to be busy. And it can't just be busy work and throwing and tossing a ball. It's got to be meaningful based on who he is, who he was versus somebody else. And it even happened in my own environment, Lori, a couple weeks ago where I was asking the staff at this time of day what matters to this person, and the staff kind of, generalize with the to- uh, uh, tossing the ball. And I'm like, you know, when even bringing it to that resident, he kind of looked at me like, really? And I thought, again, are we generalizing in terms of what we think is important at 4 o'clock or what really matters at 4 o'clock for this person? And so from that perspective, Deb, that is the gift 
of you and I being able to go into the state of North Dakota so that the barriers of what people think, because your dad got verbally aggressive, I want people to know the why. Because yeah. unless your father was this very difficult personality earlier in life, you know, and sometimes personalities have been that, and they were kind of struck to kind of, you know, um, blow up quicker than other personalities, and some of that gets more exposed with dementia, then I would be saying it, we need to step back and look at ourselves as providers, including yep. myself, and do the root cause to find out. But care providers really don't understand that because if we mm-hmm. give them the general news weather in sports learning, we put them in front of a video or we put them in an online training with these basics that are just the basics, we never bring staff to a greater knowledge that they yep. need. And I can't believe we've only got about 30 seconds left. This conversation has gone by so fast. I'm I'm very excited for this North Dakota tour that you're doing February 10th through the 15th. Um, I, and I have it posted on the blog. Um, now, people can call 701-277-9757. And again, you can always go to EnglishRoseSuites.com. I want to thank you both for being part of the show. It has just been brilliant today. So have a wonderful day, and we will talk soon. We'll want to hear all about your tour. Thank you, Lori and Jack. Thank you. Thank you very, very much, much, Lori. Thank you, Bye-bye. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.